The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Yourself? Doing well, Father. Good. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Father, I thought we could start tonight with a very interesting article that was posted on 1 Peter 5, their, their website. The article is titled, Sedevicantism is Modern Luciferianism. Uh, this is written by one Michael Massey. He says a lot of interesting things in this article, Father. We can post a link to it for our uh, for our viewers' pleasure. And I believe you've read through most of this article, Father. So I'd just like to get your your opinion uh, on on some of the things he says in here. Um, he seems to, to take a very obviously a very very anti Sedevicantist stance and kind of compares that to the. Uh, certain events that occurred with the Arian heresy in the, the 4th century and one Bishop Lucifer, and uh, he, he attempts to make a connection there between these events. So, Father, do you see the same connection that he sees, and what is your overall impression of this article? Uh, this this particular article, uh, actually, I think is an example of, uh, of very defensive scholarship. And it's the type of thing that just... Um, I think it's used by the dogmatic state of Accountus to point out how poor is the scholarship of their adversaries. And uh, it just sort of confirms the state of Accountus in their position when they see that these poor arguments being used. Um, Actually, the article uh, seems to be to be an argument in favor of state of Accountism, not against it. Really? If one does the logic, if one logically reads through what, he, what he's writing there, Mr. Massey's writing there, one sees immediately the fall, the fall to the fallacy in his argument. Uh, because as one reads through, one finds out that he's talking about something that is quite different from the current situation. And something that doesn't apply. Um, he talks about this uh, particular bishop, Lucifer was his name. I mean, that's a legitimate name. That was the name of Lucifer before he fell uh, and became Satan or Satan, right? Uh, Lucifer was to be the light bearer. So it was a legitimate name. And it shouldn't be surprising to us to find out that there were people actually named uh, the light bearer as there were those who were called Christopher or the, the carrier of Christ or other uh, similar names. So anyway, um, but uh, this this Bishop Lucifer was a friend of uh, St. Athanasius, the Bishop of Alexandria, who was the great opponent in the East of the Arian heretics. In the West, St. Hilary was the great opponent of the Arians. And um, as it turns out, um, I try to make the story short. Uh, one can read the article for them oneself, but uh, um, you know the the author is trying to make it sound as though the Sadie Vicantis of today 
are essentially the equivalent of the Luciferians back in the 4th century. As though today's Sedevacantists are in the same position, or adopt the same position that the followers of this bishop, Lucifer, did. Uh, the, the, the point that he's making is that this bishop, Lucifer, wanted nothing to do with the Arians, and even uh, separated himself from the Arians, okay? And uh, when, when Liberius uh, was pressured into signing a document excommunicating St. Athanasius, and a document which lent itself to Arian, Arian leanings, so to speak, <clears throat> that he too, okay, was, um, um, you might say, he doesn't say it in the article, but kind of considered off, out of bounds by Lucifer, Bishop Lucifer, so that um, when everyone was reconciled, when the Council of Alexandria straightened all this out, right, <clears throat> and uh, got the Arian bishops to either uh, proclaim their Arianism clearly and excommunicate them, or the those who had embraced Arianism to recant their Arianism and return to communion with the Catholic Church by returning to the faith, that, uh, that uh, he says, anyway, Lucifer then continued to be at odds with them and refuse to accept them, even after the matter had been resolved, that the heretics had been, um, you know, put out of the church, and those who had wavered in the faith or been heretics were reconciled to the faith, Lucifer continued to refuse to have anything to do with them. Okay. What does that have to do with today? I mean, has this been resolved in any way? Have the heretics been declared as heretics and rejected from the church, and uh, those who were heretics who uh, embraced the faith been reconciled to the church and restored, and the church uh, basically has been, um, you might say, restored to peace and the fullness of faith. So it's very clear that the heretics have been rejected. The heresy has been rejected, and... Um, um, others have been reconciled to the faith and declared themselves integrally Catholic. What does that have to do with Sedevacantus today? Because that's not happened today. That is not the situation today at all. The problem is that heresy continues to run rampant, and it is not a matter of Francis being pressured by an emperor into uh, signing a document um, uh, that is against his will. This is a matter of Francis being a, a modernist, uh, not only a modernist, but being the modernist in chief right now, right? And uh, pursuing a steady course of heresy and blasphemy. So why would Mr. Massey compare the situation prevailing today with a time when there was a Bishop Lucifer who refused to accept those who actually were professing the faith? after they had been reconciled to the faith. I don't understand that. It doesn't make sense to me. <clears throat> and um, as I say, I, I think his argument really, um, you know, can easily be used by the Sedevacantists. One doesn't have to be a Sedevacantist to see the fallacy in the argument. Uh, to say, well, Bishop, Bishop Lucifer, when he was uh, facing all of these Arians, he refused to have anything to do with them.
right? Because they were persecuting the church, they were persecuting his friend Athanasius, and it anathematized his friend Athanasius. At that time, Bishop Lucifer, as is the name is perhaps unfortunate today, but nonetheless, I mean, he was a zealous Catholic bishop. In fact, one historian referred to him as an impetuous Orthodox bishop. Orthodox, in that he held the true faith, impetuous insofar as he would not even be reconciled to those who are reconciled to the faith, a situation that certainly has not happened today. Okay. So um, one could easily use that argument, as I say, to, uh, to follow <clears throat> the example of uh, those who were being persecuted <clears throat> by the heretics at that time and those who were uh, allies of those who were being persecuted. Say, we are not going to give aid, any aid and comfort to the heretics. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really telling to read just his, his, last, uh, his, his last sentence here. Um, he says, when one is tempted to reject the Pope and all the bishops of the church due to the heresy and scandal they constantly promote, remember the example of St. Athanasius, who always fought to remain in communion, even with the heretic Pope Liberius. When you recognize and resist the Pope, you are in communion with St. Athanasius. But when you reject and resist him... You are in communion with Lucifer. Very poor scholarship. Liberius was not a heretic. He was never accused of heresy by the church. He's not held up as an example of a heretic in any way. Um, It's very clear that he was pressured into signing whatever he was signing. But he did not subscribe to Arianism. There's no question about it. He was never an Arian heretic. They're trying to make it look as though he was in order to somehow create a parallel between Francis and Liberius. There is not a parallel between Francis and Liberius. No. Um, so, uh, but the reason why they're trying to create that parable is because uh, that parallel is because they're trying to say, well, we still have to recognize Francis as the Pope. We have to, because they they, they want, especially uh, the blog spot, the blog site uh, one Peter five. Uh, is, is, is bent on this idea that you cannot for a moment believe that Francis is not, under any circumstances, you cannot believe that he's not the Pope. Even if we recognize that he's a blatant uh, heretic, right, that he still has to be the Pope. This is the line that this man is purveying here. And he treats those who don't believe what he's saying here or don't go along with that as though they're not even Catholics. Yeah. He anathematizes them. But he has no business doing that because he would have to anathematize anathematize St. Francis of Sales. He would have to anathematize others uh, also. uh, St. Robert Bellarmine? St. Robert Bellarmine. He'd have to anathematize many others in the the course of the church's history who said that a heretic pope cannot be a pope because he's not a member of the church. He's lost the faith publicly, defected from the faith. So... um, He's anathematizing all of those people who said the opposite of what he's saying now. Mm-hmm. And he has no problem <clears throat> saying you have to recognize Francis as the Pope. Whether he's a heretic or not, whether he has the faith or not, you have to recognize that. And uh, But here, here's a man who's basically anathematizing Catholics who are truly Catholic doctors of the faith and recognized theologians and so on. And um, he's assuming to himself the powers of a pope saying, okay, now I anathematize all of those who hold this position. 
but the church never traditionally anathematized those who held that position in principle. He's saying, okay, you know, regardless of what St. Francis de Sales said, regardless of what St. Robert Bellarmine wrote or said, and the church accepted and never anathematized, I, this individual here, I announce that this is anathema, and anyone who holds this position is anathema. This is playing right into the hands of the city of Accountus, who point to that and say, this man is pretending to be a pope. The pope himself, he's kind of crowned himself, you know. Uh, the very thing that we say is true of the dogmatic state of Vicantis, that they somehow have arrogated to themselves authority they don't have, <laughs> you know. So this is, the, this is the problem that's going on <clears throat> between the dogmatic state of Vicantis and the anti-state of Vicantis, and the, it's, it's an argument that cannot be resolved as long as they both are claiming to have... Uh, you know, powers of uh, conduct themselves as though each one of them was the vicar of Christ unto himself. This is not traditional Catholicism. Traditional Catholicism follows what the church has taught in the past mm. and what the church has allowed Catholics to believe in the past. And so there's nothing contrary to the Catholic faith in these principles, such as that laid down by St. Francis de Sales, that laid down by St. Robert Bellarmine. The church embraced their teaching. The church did not dogmatize. It has not pronounced a dogma on the, on the, on the subject. Okay. Uh, but nonetheless, the church has said this is a perfectly Catholic position to hold. Mm -hmm. And this is, in fact, Catholic tradition. So when you have an author, you have the, the head of this blog spot, what, 1 Peter 5, 1 Peter 5, who has taken it upon himself, arrogated to himself the so-called authority to make that decision on behalf of the church to anathematize anybody who holds... The same position that Francis, St. Francis de Sales held. The same position that St. Robert Bellarmine held. Now, this man is a man who is arrogated to himself authority he doesn't have. And this is exactly what makes the situation so difficult to deal with today. And, you know, Father, this reminds me a lot of something we've talked about on this show before, where <laughs> someone once said that uh, the state of Vicantis position, it's, it's kind of a cop-out. It's a very easy solution, an easy answer. To, to the crisis, and I, I would maintain that quite the opposite is true, that, that this kind of dogmatic position that uh, Francis is the Pope, he has to be the Pope, he, he can't be anything else, I would maintain that that is, is kind of the easy, mindless uh, solution to all of this, and that seems to be exactly what uh, this, this 1 Peter 5 blog is, is espousing, especially with this article. Well, uh, perhaps so, Tom. I, I, consider, I consider that position to be fraught with Problem. It's a very problematic too myself, mm -hmm. but there there are those who simply, uh, I think they're afraid of the consequences of it admitting right. the, even the possibility that perhaps Francis isn't the Pope, right. and then there are those who are so desperate to um, they 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 simply cannot believe that Francis could be the vicar of Christ on earth, saying what he's saying, doing what he's doing. I mean, with the, the idolatry in the Vatican and all the rest. So they want to make Benedict the Pope. They want to say, well, he's the, he's the Pope. And he, he uh, you know, he never validly resigned or whatever. But they're just desperate because they, they just can't acknowledge that uh, there's a problem. Even, even they, they can't even acknowledge that there's some kind of a dilemma, you know, that, that there's a dilemma here. They want to make it sound as though it's absolutely out of the question to think that Francis 
might not be the Pope. And if you even think that he might not be, by any stretch of the imagination, mm -hmm. um, consider that a possibility, and immediately they anathematize that. And that tells me that they're just being irrational. And they grasp at straws, like this, this argument here, they grasp at straws to try to, <clears throat> to try to draw parallels between past events, past genuine papacies, that of Liberius, that of Honorius I, and so on, and try to uh, make it sound as though what we're involved, what we're faced with today is somehow coincident with that, but it's not. This is unique. This is a unique situation here. And, but the church has given us principles as to what a Catholic can. Uh, those are traditional principles that a church, the church has provided for us to guide our thinking in this. Mm -hmm. But uh, they want to um, uh, just uh, overrule the tradition of the church in, in this regard. And Father, I think it's interesting to point out, too, uh, that he at least implies that uh, that Francis is a heretic because he says, you know, in that, that last paragraph that I read. Well, read, read what he says again. He's, he's, I mean, it's very, very... Uh, <laughs> he says it uh, very openly, without any hesitation. Yeah, he, sa he says, when one is tempted to reject the Pope and all the bishops of the Church due to the heresy and scandal they constantly promote, they constantly promote... Remember the example of St. Athanasius, who always fought to remain in communion, even with the heretic Pope Liberius. So he's at least implying that Francis is a heretic, constantly, constantly promoting heresy, and uh, yet still will not even begin to question the, the uh, supposed fact in his mind that, that Francis has to be the Pope. You know, this kind of reminds me of, of an email that we received one time from a, a viewer who said that, uh, a Nova Sorto Catholic, who said that she daily prays for the conversion of Pope Francis. Okay. And <laughs> I think of... If, if one just, just takes a step back and, you know, think about things for a minute, you have, you have a heretic pope. You're admitting he is a heretic. Right. Uh, you're, you're praying, praying for his conversion because he doesn't have the Catholic faith. Well, what does that tell you? There's not an awful lot of logic going around here. <laughs> yeah. not, not a lot of rational thinking going around here. Mm -hmm. Even what he says there, you know, what uh, Mr. Massey says there, that they're constantly promoting heresy and mm -hmm. blasphemy. Mm -hmm. you even that falls short. I mean... Francis is even, uh, you know, declared as magisterial teaching the eighth chapter of his uh, uh, Amoris Laetitia, mm -hmm. you know, about giving their communion to, um, to those living in open adultery. Mm -hmm. He says his magisterial teaching mm -hmm. is, is teaching also with regard to the death penalty, which contradicts the ordinary magisterium of the church. Um, you know, he considers that magisterial. He puts that in the catechism. Now he's putting ecological sins in the catechism. Yeah. At the same time, he's minimizing sins against marriage, sins against marriage, sins against purity. He's minimizing those. Yeah. So he, he doesn't, uh, he actually sells short the evil of what is actually taking place by Francis and his bishops. And he's producing a situation there that, um, um, really is not parallel to the situation today. The Arians have not been condemned for their heresy. And those Arians, uh, other Arians have not returned to the faith and been received back into the faith, having rejected their Arianism. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so the fact that Bishop Lucifer in the old days would still not be in communion with them after that had happened 
has nothing to do with what is what is happening today. There's, that is not parallel to what is happening today. They're grasping for straws, and as I say, they're feeding the problem by that bad, very bad scholarship. I can't even call it that. Uh, because what they're doing is setting up a straw man for the the other side to, to knock down and then proclaim victory for their position. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the, the problem is um, that just automatically taking the opposite position to what somebody else does doesn't make you orthodox. <clears throat> I mean, you, you, you can have a heretic, okay, <clears throat> who denies the divinity of Christ. But you can have also, also heretics who believe in the divinity of Christ, but, the, but deny the humanity of Christ. And we had that situation going on in the reaction against Arianism, where there were those who were saying, Arius was wrong, Christ is God. He is truly consubstantial with the Father. He is the God, true God of true God. But as man, he did not have a human will to operate. So he could not consent to the crucifixion and the redemption as man. He had to go kind of offline with a human will, or his human will was inoperable, inoperative. You know? So basically, they were denying the integral, integrity of the humanity of our Lord. Just because they were the opposite of the heretics, of the, uh, the Aryan heretics, did not prevent them from being heretics themselves. And so I, I'm, I'm finding today that we're kind of uh, watching the same battle going on between the dogmatic state of Accountus and the dogmatic anti-state of Accountus, mm-hmm. where it's as though there's no reasoning with either one of them. Mm-hmm. Well, Father, something else I'd like to get into tonight, I, I think it kind of uh, ties in with what we're talking about here, all of this uh, just rampant confusion uh, of the times. Um, you know, we just recently had the last Sunday after uh, Pentecost, and then we just celebrated the, the first Sunday of Advent. And I thought it was very interesting, Father, in, in the gospel for both of those masses, the last Sunday uh, after Pentecost and the first Sunday of Advent, there is um, mention of, of the end times, and our Lord is talking about uh, what is going to happen at the end times and, and what steps we should take uh, to, to protect ourselves during those end times. And I thought it was very interesting, uh, Father, how our Lord talks about uh, fleeing to the mountains when, when you see all of the, the signs of the end times coming to pass. He, he says, flee to the mountains. He says, uh, do not go into the desert. He says, those, there will be those who tell you that, that Christ is in the closets. Do not go there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you believe, Father, that when our Lord says, flee to the mountains, you believe he is referring to the mouth of Calvary. And that would be the holy sacrifice. Is that correct? Well, if you read the passages, St. Matthew chapter 24 and St. Luke chapter 21, you find uh, with St. Matthew, when our, our Lord says, when you see the abomination of desolation right. set up in the holy place, like in the sanctuary of God, he says, if you're on the rooftops, do not go down to take your coat. If you're in the fields, do not go back for any reason. Uh, our Lord says, flee the mountains. Okay. And um, later on in that same gospel where our Lord talks about the false Christ and the false prophets, he said there are those who will come and say, lo, he is there in the desert. Don't go out to the desert. Lo, he's in the closet. Do not go into the house, into the closet. And so our Lord is actually setting up before us three places, as it were. Okay. There are two places he tells us not to go, and there's one place he tells us to go, right? 
<clears throat> it says, don't go looking for uh, out in the desert because the false Christs are out there. And so out in the desert, in the wasteland, the wasteland of the world, where they'll be exposed to the dangers, right? <clears throat> don't go into the closet in the sense that, <clears throat> well, in the sense, don't look in your own home for the Christ to be there. Don't go back there looking, rooting around there. <clears throat> and But rather go to the mountain, right? Later on in that gospel, our Lord says, where the body is there where the eagles may be gathered together. That statement seems to stand alone in the gospel. It seems to stand out. <clears throat> but it does definitely have a, a, a relationship to the rest of the gospel. It stands out. The fathers of the church have said that the body there that is referred to is the body of Christ. The eagles are the faithful. They will remain gathered around the body of Christ. The mass, the Holy Eucharist, our Lord was crucified on Calvary. Around Jerusalem, there was the hill country. Our Lady went into the hill country, actually, to see Elizabeth. Uh, that's what the Gospel says. She went into Montana, right? And um, so I think we could reasonably understand when our Lord says we should flee to the mountains. It corresponds to where the body is, the body of Christ is. We should go to Calvary. That's where we should go. We should go to Calvary. We should find the true, the body of Christ, and uh, we should gather around the true mass. Leave behind the abomination of desolation. Leave it in the sanctuary. The sanctuary has been defiled. He's, he, our Lord says, leave the, leave the, don't go into the desert. Don't go into the closets of the house. He's already said, don't go back there. But he's also said, when you see the abomination of desolation, get away from it. When you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, flee. Flee immediately. Flee as though you were running from it for your life. Get away from it. That's the new mess. <clears throat> we don't need any further proof. We've seen where it leads. It leads to the enculturation with paganism. It leads to the, to the return of idolatry and paganism. And uh, what happened in the Vatican over this Amazon Synod is a natural and necessary development from Vatican II, its principles, and the new Mass, which it spawned. So this is what the new Mass is all about, exactly what happened to the Amazon Synod. People have to face that. You know, the conservative Nova Soto people have to face that and not cling to their Vatican II as though somehow what happened in the Amazon Synod was not in the, in the, it was the spirit, it was the, let's say, the spirit of Vatican II, but not the letter of Vatican II. I'm sorry, that's baloney, that's not true. Okay, that's false. <clears throat> this is what Vatican II was about, and this is what the Novus Ordo liturgy is all about. Being open to these things. <laughs> this is the abomination of desolation, and our Lord says very clearly, get away from it. Abandon it. He says, go to the mountain. Okay. And Father, I think that's just so powerful if one, considers that uh, it's a very simple concept. It seems our Lord is just simply saying, when we are in the end times, don't stay home, don't go into the world, go to Mass. Uh, if we want to be one of those eagles, one of those faithful gathered around the body, then we need to go to Mass. And you recently said, Father, in one of your sermons, that you, in fact, do believe that we are in the end times, or at least in the vestibule of the end times. Uh, you think that now we are in the times of the, the great apostasy, um, the fact that I think so, though, to me, is not that important, frankly. St. Pius X himself, himself said so. 
that he believed. We were in those times already. That means much more to me than my own okay. impressions of things, you know. Mm -hmm. That Papias X himself said so. Mm -hmm. The very first encyclical of his reign. I think that's extremely significant. But how, how powerful is it, Father, to uh, to consider this when our Lord just, this is the, if I'm not mistaken, this is the, the, the one central thing that he tells us to do, flee, flee to the mountains, go go to Mass. And I think, um, you know, we, we received so many emails from uh, from really zealous viewers who are asking, you know, what, what they can do in these end times. Things are so bad. Everything is such a mess. What, what can I do? What do I need to do? And I think the answer is is just so simple: go to mass. Mm -hmm. And I know the the retort will be, "Well, there's there's no mass in my area. It's it's extremely hard for me." To when find we're talking mass. about the real mass, the true Catholic, the traditional Catholic mass. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to, to tie that in with with uh, an excerpt that you have recently put in uh, in the bulletin here at Immaculate Conception. This is from uh, Cardinal Manning in a lecture that he gave titled "The Passion and Death of the Church." And uh, <clears throat> I just wanted to read. This was 1861. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to read one one part of this, Father, where he, he says, The Holy Fathers who have written upon the subject of Antichrist and of the prophecies of Daniel, without a single exception, as far as I know, and they are the fathers both of the East and the West, the Greek and the Latin Church, all of them, unanimously, say that in the latter end of the world, during the reign of Antichrist, the holy sacrifice of the altar will cease. Um, Father, are, do we, do we, are we beginning to see that? Today, you know, we get emails from viewers uh, almost on a daily basis saying there is no mass anywhere near my area. What am I to do? Do you think that the holy sacrifice of the mass is beginning to cease? Like, well, the holy sacrifice of the mass could cease for a number of reasons. Okay, either it could be substituted, something could be used as a substitute for it that is not the mass. That's the Novus Ordo. That's the New Order liturgy. Okay, that's a substitute for the traditional mass. Okay. But it can also cease because the priesthood has fallen, because they've introduced a false priesthood. Well, in the Novus Ordo priesthood, there certainly is a very serious question about the validity of not only, let's say, even many of those ordained in the new way, because just of uh, unbelief or denial of the priesthood itself, the very concept, concept of the priesthood, but also with the new rite of ordination, there is, uh, the, there is a question. There is a question because you can see that the reformers who started with that very sacrament of holy orders, who started changing the ceremonies and the rites surrounding the ordination of deacons and priests and bishops, uh, definitely were making changes that uh, were designed to eradicate the true Catholic concept of the priesthood. But the changes that came in in 1968 in the, the rite of ordination of deacons and priests and bishops, we're definitely in the direction of eradicating the very Catholic concept of the priesthood. So that could also make that prophecy come true. Um, there could be, there would be persecution. The question is, would there be persecution coming from without the church, from outside the church, or actually from inside a false church? This is something Cardinal Manning did not raise here, because in his day it probably was considered to be out of the question, or something beyond comprehension. We're talking about the time of Pope Pius IX, okay? And um, 
But the fact is, I mean, he did make it very clear. And by the way, he's citing the doctors and the fathers of the Western Church and the fathers and doctors of the Eastern Church. He says it's, it's I don't know if he used the word unanimous. He does, he does, yeah. He used the words unanimous there. Yeah. That they say that the holy sacrifice will cease on the face of the earth. Remember what our Lord himself said in the gospel. He said this as a rhetorical question, and he said this to his apostles. It was a quaint question form. When the Son of Man returns to judge, do you think he will find faith upon the earth? <clears throat> question mark. That's a rhetorical question. The implication? The implication? No. <clears throat> Could he mean by that that the faith had completely disappeared from the face of the earth? No. Why? Because our Lord said he would be with his church until the end. And the faith and the church must survive until the end of the world. But what our Lord is certainly implying there is that the faith will have to be underground. And um, that the the perverse mankind that had rejected, had rejected him would have believed that they had once again buried him as they buried his corpse, crucified, died, buried, and they believed that he was buried and done with. And mankind will go through that again when it believes that it is crucified our Lord in his church, <clears throat> betrayed by Peter, betrayed by Judas, abandoned by the other apostles, right? <clears throat> Except for John, right? And we'll think that, that it's done, it's finished, that Voltaire had his victory, that uh, not only is the church dead, but now it will be forever forgotten. Even the name of Jesus Christ will be forgotten. As far as they're concerned, they will have buried all of that. But of course, we know that the resurrection happened, and it will happen again. But uh, just the, the very idea of our Lord's rhetorical question, the unanimous teachings of the fathers of the church, both in the East and the West, about the, uh, the as it were, the burial of the Mass, you know, that will be underground only. Um, well, it's... Uh, it's a provocative question today, and it leads us to um, think in terms of the importance of every single true Mass today. The importance of every single true Mass that is offered today. Because we cannot promise ourselves, any more than our Lord does, that this Mass will be everywhere. <clears throat> um especially during the, the times of persecution, the persecution that is coming uh, during the time of the Antichrist who will try to eradicate it with a, with a, a, a hellish vengeance after that to make it disappear from the face of the earth. Padre Pio said the earth, the world could sooner exist without the sun than it could without the mass. So he, he indicated the existence of the world itself. He wasn't speaking hyperbolically either. He wasn't speaking about hyperbole. That without the Mass, there would be no mercy. You know? And the, and the, the mercy of God is more important to the world and mankind than, than the sun itself for life on earth. So uh, we have to appreciate the value of every single Mass. <clears throat> we have to teach our children the value of that. You, you, you know what... Uh, St. Pius X saw this coming. St. <clears throat> Pius X himself saw what was coming upon the world. 
at the beginning of his reign. In October 4th, I think it's October 4th, 1903, he issued his first encyclical, A Supremi, in which he talked about, at the very beginning of the encyclical, that these are the times. I fear that these are the times. It appears these are the times spoken of by St. Paul in his second epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 2. Go and read them. Look them up. You can see them read it with your own eyes in your own homes, in your own Bibles. What St. Paul says there, and St. Pius X said that he, he saw convincing signs that these are the times. <clears throat> At the end of his reign, in 1914, he saw the beginning of World War I, the Great War, and all of the terrible destruction. He must have seen that as a fulfillment of his fears. The entire world uh, just locked in a death struggle that he foresaw, okay? The... Uh, <clears throat> The Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated, okay, uh, a month later, okay, uh, we talked about then the declaration of war that followed that, okay, the Axis and the Allies. <clears throat> Within a month after that, Pope Pius X died, August of 1914. Pius X died within a month, less than a month of the declaration of war. And they say that he died of a broken heart. He was just completely horrified by what he knew was coming upon the world. And so, perhaps for him, he saw it as a mercy from God. Died of a heart attack. So, um, you know, here we have the case of a, of, a, of a pope seeing this coming. What did he do during his reign? He's known for a couple of very powerful things. He is known for having denounced and unveiled the, the danger of modernism, the threat of modernism to the faith. The most dangerous enemy the church had ever faced in her entire history. He says, that's what he calls it. He doesn't just say it's a heresy. He says it is the synthesis of all heresies, all the heresies bound together, because it, def it actually redefines the very concept of faith. And it's not Catholic. It gives a definition of the word faith that is n n contrary to the Catholic teaching of what faith really is. So it wants to substitute a worldly concept of what, the, what faith is for, what the true, for the true Catholic faith. So he says it lays the axe to the root, to the very root of faith. These are all very significant statements in his encyclical Pashendi. Very powerful statements that he makes. I wish people appreciated the significance. I wish people today appreciated the significance of what he was saying then. Now that we see the consequences of that axe, okay, and what it's done. <clears throat> but um, the other thing that St. Pius X is known for is making Holy Communion accessible to younger children. <clears throat> Even children who have reached the age of reason just to the point of recognizing that the host consecrated at the Mass is the real presence of Jesus Christ. And if they just recognize, they can distinguish that from an ordinary piece of bread, that they have the faith that Jesus is there, that he promised he would be there, and that he's really there, and this is Jesus here. Now, you might say, well, a child, but as a child understand, theology, not much. But a child can just accept on faith so much more easily than we 
who have the use of reason, because we think of all the reasons, you know, we start, well, can it really be so? Why don't we start weighing objections? You know, a child accepts really on faith, okay, and wholeheartedly. A child can believe that our Lord is here without any hesitation. Doesn't go fabricating objections, right? And uh, St. Pius didn't realize that. But what I'm getting at is St. Pius X saw this effort against modernism and the effort to promote daily communion for the children as the same effort. The, the uh, document quam singulari of the uh, sacred congregation of the discipline of the sacraments in 1910. This was a document that provided for daily communion for children. You know what that means? Daily Mass. That they would attend Mass daily. This is what he wanted. That the children attend daily Mass and be able to receive our Lord in Holy Communion daily. He even gave a special plenary indulgence for those who would receive Holy Communion at least five times, at least five times during the week. He made provisions for this. And according to the document, he personally reviewed this document and gave it personally his approval before he allowed it to be issued. <coughs> if you read the Catholic Encyclopedia article from 1913 on frequent communion, again, you know, the, the, the article of the uh, Catholic Encyclopedia goes through the history of the reception of Holy Communion in the Church. How in the very early days of the Church, it was not uncommon. Rather, the common practice was to receive Holy Communion every time people could, even every day if possible. But that kind of drifted away. And through the years, it gives a little synopsis, a very brief overview of the different positions of the, the faithful, as it were, about receiving communion frequently or infrequently. And it talks about, it's a very interesting little bit of history there, and it is very brief. And I think most of our people, if they would go to that article in the Catholic Encyclopedia and read under the title Frequent Communion, they'd be very surprised, just as if they went to Quam Singulari, which is in English and available to them. If they began reading that document of 1910, I think they'd be very surprised at what they're reading there. Both of those articles, though, I mean, the document Quam Singulari of the Sacred Congregation for the Discipline of the Sacraments and the Catholic Encyclopedia article on Frequent Communion wind up in the same place. And they wind up in the same place saying that the popes at that time, we're talking about 1913 now, right? right? Pope Pius IX, Pope Pius, Leo XIII, Pope Pius X, all urged daily communion. And Pope Pius X himself especially was urging that children be receiving communion daily while they can before they're corrupted by the world. And this is one of the things that urged him to set the date, set the years earlier and not wait until the kids were 14 years old. His point was by the time they're 14 years old, they haven't yet received their first Holy Communion. Who knows what the state of their souls will be considering the world around them and what's happening in the world today. He said, we have to get to them before the world does. We can't wait till they're 14 years old to give them Holy Communion. They need to be fortified by the reception of Holy Communion long before that. They need to be fortified daily for years before they get to that age. 
when the world will be corrupting them. He didn't say that it was an infallible formula for, for making sure they were never corrupted, but he said this is a great hope that they will have a, found such a great love for receiving our Lord and Holy Communion and such a great um, source of grace in receiving Holy Communion that they will carry that forward with them through life, even if they fall away, that those early years will still be with them. And the graces of those years, too, will still have their effect carrying forward in life. He saw what was coming. The document by which he, in which he had the sacred congregation or the discipline of the faith, of the sacraments, urge daily communion for the children, daily mass. They go together, right? That same document was issued within a month of the encyclical in which he issued the demand for the oath against modernism. Within a month, these two documents came out, 1910. St. Pius X demanding the children have access to receive our Lord daily in Holy Communion. And the oath against modernism that he put in place, he saw these as the same battle for the children. That's how serious it was in his mind. And it just amazes me that there are so many people out there who, who don't get that. Or even if they do know that, they just dismiss it. Even those who supposedly are dedicated to St. Pius X, his memory and what he stood for, dismiss that. They don't, they don't allow for that. Daily Mass and daily communion. They don't have that as an integral part of their program, even in their schools. And uh, they countenance the claims of those that, who say, well, you know, requiring the children in our Catholic schools to attend Mass every day is going to lessen the children's appreciation for Mass and finally lead to their rebellion against it. That is completely foreign to the thinking of St. Pius X. That's di diametrically and diabolically opposed to, to the mind of St. Pius X. To think like that, you know. You know, um, somebody brought up to me once, well, in the old days, you know, not all Catholic schools, in the old days, I'm talking about the 1950s, okay? That's the old days now. Uh, not every Catholic school, at least in this country, had daily mass for the students, for their children. Some did, some didn't. Maybe somebody proposed, maybe half of them did. And then look, <clears throat> then the changes came in, right? The 1960s. Now, I bet that this is their argument to me. <clears throat> if you surveyed those who were in schools where they went to Mass every day and received communion very regularly, how many of those <clears throat> went on to become traditional Catholics, as opposed to those who didn't have the Mass every day in their schools? You know? So can you tell me, they challenge me and say, but I can't, obviously, <laughs> you know, this, this is kind of a, a, a mythical challenge they're proposing to me, <clears throat> uh, a fanciful challenge. Can you show me that those who went to schools where they attended every day, every day were more inclined to become traditional Catholics and hold on to the old faith than those who didn't have Mass every day? Good argument, right? Good question. Bad question. It's completely subverting the whole, their whole point. Their point was that if the children attend Mass every day, 
this puts them at a disadvantage that the consequence of that will be that they will rebel against the idea of the Mass. <clears throat> they will develop a resentment for the Mass and a resistance to the Mass. <clears throat> so really the question doesn't involve me proving anything about the importance of the children attending Mass every day and receiving Holy Communion. What they would need to do is say, well, <clears throat> if my, my having a school in which children attend Mass every day turns them off to the Mass, but Send them to a school where they don't leaves them more thinking positively. Then the burden of proof rather is on them to say, well, does that mean the children who went to schools where there was not mass every day, they were the ones more likely to be faithful to the mass because they weren't turned off to it by being forced to go to it. Rather, the argument should be, if they're going to be logical about it, that they have the burden to prove to show that those who didn't go to Mass every day were not required to go to Mass every day were the ones who actually wound up being the traditional Catholics and held on to the faith. Because they say, after all, if this is what's better for the children, it makes them more faithful. Right? You understand that point? Yes, sir. So again, um, the thinking here is not only that logical. It is, uh, it is, it is not... It is, it is antithetical to what the church herself has, has been teaching. And the saints of the church have taught about the reception of our Lord and Holy Communion. So, I mean, if one studies the mind of St. Pius X and really takes that seriously, there is no other there's a, no, no argument to the matter. This is what St. Pius X wanted. He wanted the youngsters, he wanted the children in Catholic schools to have daily Mass and to be encouraged to receive our Lord in Holy Communion every day. Father, what would you say to those, though, who do not have daily Mass and do not have daily Communion available to them? Because this is, this I would say this is the single most uh, common reoccurring email that we receive, um, most most frequent comment that, that we get is that uh, a viewer will say, I love everything that you say, but I don't I don't live anywhere near, near a Mass center. I, I'm eight hours away or whatever it may be from the nearest one of your chapels, or I'm an entirely... If they cannot go to attend the traditional Mass, mm -hmm. they should try to at least follow it in the Missal, to obtain a Missal, mm -hmm. offer those prayers, sanctify the days, Sundays and Holy Days, at least that. If they can find a transmission of it, if they, like, we, we broadcast the traditional Mass, hopefully soon we'll be live-streaming the Mass from Immaculate Conception. <clears throat> and if they cannot go to receive our Lord and be physically present at the Mass, at least they should try to be spiritually present, and they should make Holy Communions. Mm. They should make spiritual Holy Communions often, every day, to, to um, have the, the prayers that they offer, asking our Lord to come with the graces of Holy Communion into their souls because they desire Him to be there. And He knows it's a sacrifice for them to be not able to receive Him in the Holy, mm. in the Holy Eucharist itself. Father, would it be too bold, though, to say to to at least some of the some of these questioners to say to them exactly what our Lord said in the Gospel that we talked about? Where he said, "Flee to the mountains." He also said in another place, "Come to me, all ye who labor and are burdened, and I will I will refresh you." Uh, would it be too bold to to say to some of these people exactly what our Lord said? Um, you know, as we've been talking about in the, in this program, these very well may be the end times. The mass is, is becoming more and more scarce. Do, do Catholics not have a responsibility to flee to the mountains, to move, to relocate that's, that's to, where, point, to where the mass is? And I, I, obviously, that's not that's not uh, feasible 
in, in every situation. But I wonder, Father, I, I really wonder how many how many Catholics, how many traditional Catholics could actually literally flee to the mountains, flee to Mount Calvary, go move. Uh, I mean, I, I know that it requires a tremendous amount of sacrifice. There are certainly uh, innumerable reasons why one uh, could not move to a traditional Catholic mass center. Um, but, Father, is this not more possible for more people? Do you not think that they could? Well, I think it is. And I, th- I think if you look at the actual status questionis, any of them, I mean, it, you may have traditional Catholic chapels and missions around the country that we serve. And we will have people who, let's say, want us to come to a city maybe an hour or two hours drive away. Mm-hmm. We will offer Mass in, in one city. And they will say, Father, can't you come and start a Mass center in our own city? Because, you know, it's, it's a lot of effort and trouble for us to drive the hour, two hours. So rather than we uh, finding ourselves needing to travel to come to Mass, it would be so much better for us if you would just make the trip and come to us instead. Right? So um, you, you begin to realize, well, if they really loved the Mass that much, that they want us to add a fourth or fifth Mass onto the Mass stream that we offer, and they want us to make the journey ourselves. It, well, but if they they don't care enough that much to make the journey to the mass to begin with, but they want the mass offered within you know five miles of their home, and they will come. Then, mm. then you realize there's a lack of commitment there. Mm. There really is a lack of a commitment. Well, what you're saying, Tom, is very true. That our Lord does say. Well, first of all, when you see the abomination of desolation set up in another place, flee. flee. So get away from it. So the first thing should be get away from the new mass. Just get away from the new mass entirely. Where are you going to go? Well, our Lord answers that question. Don't go into the deserts. <clears throat> Don't go into the closets, right? You're not going to find our Lord there. Uh, and, and I think the way you put it very is very well. Don't stay at home expecting our Lord to come to you. <clears throat> And uh, and don't go out into the wasteland of the world. Go to Calvary, where the body there there is the true body of Christ. That's where the faithful will be gathered together. You know, I've noticed something uh, actually about this this whole matter of those who say, "Well, look, if you have a Catholic school and the tr- which incorporates the mass as part of the daily schedule, and the children are expected to attend the mass daily," okay. It engenders a certain rebelliousness in the children. I mentioned this before, that I actually asked our 11th, 12th graders about this. Not all of them, but a good percentage of them. I asked them what they thought about that. And I I asked them, does the fact that uh, students are required to attend Mass every day create a certain resentment in them about going to Mass. And the, the, the students all agreed the, in, that, in that particular group um, that that would be true of some some of them, some students, okay? Some students would react that way. And, um, you know, I, I asked them, well, what, what do you think if I backed off and said, well, let's only have Mass for all the students two or three times a week? They all agreed. And I, I would not say these are the most devout students, okay? 
I, I did not cherry pick the students who were answering this. I had a random group of students here. Um, what if what if we didn't require that? And they they said they commonly agreed that it would send the message that it wasn't that important. That it wasn't that important. Now, Father Grimwell and I have been for the last thirty something years scrambling to get back to hear from the missions back to the school to make sure that children have the mass each day because we believe, like Saint, such as St. Pius X, uh, that it's very important to show them that it's important to us. How can we expect them to see it as important to them if they don't see that it's important to us? But uh, I've noticed this. There are parents who are saying <clears throat> that requiring the children to go to mass every day creates a certain resentment in the children. And they're saying that because they've seen children of theirs grow up who have fallen away from the Mass. But I would submit to those parents, maybe those children already resented going to Mass in the first place. Maybe they would have resented going to Mass ever, whether it was offered once on Sunday and they were required to go on Sunday alone. Maybe if it was offered twice during the school week, they would have resented that three times during the school week. They just began to resent the Mass, period. Whenever they went, okay, they began to resent it because they thought it was too much trouble. And they were already in the process of rebelling at that time. So why blame it on the fact that they were exposed to the Mass during that time? They were overexposed to the Mass. I think if these parents went back and they, they, they examined the situation better, they would see... Okay, there was something already happening to my son or my daughter <clears throat> during those school years. There was already a warning sign that something's going wrong. And it wasn't the fact that they were required to offer Mass every, every day that they went to school. That's not what was causing the problem. Their resentment was symptomatic of a deeper problem. <clears throat> they were involved in things outside of school, outside of the home, that made them very worldly. That such that they, they were rebelling against the Mass already then. Um, they, they were just rebellious of a mind to be rebellious anyway. They did not have a love for our Lord then. And um, they, they did not value the Mass even at that time, clearly. Maybe the problem was what they consider the cause of the problem was rather an effect of the problem that was already there and deeper. And even reinforced by the parents, if the parents heard the children complaining and sympathized with them, <clears throat> oh yes, going to Mass every day, that's far too much. You shouldn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. That's all a child needs to hear from his parents. What does that tell the child about the importance of the Mass? So the parents might have not only been <clears throat> a striving a serious problem to the wrong reason, right? But missing the real problem and even and even encouraging the problem back then. So this is actually how I see it now. I'm, I've been looking back at those who are making this argument, looking back in the past and seeing, you know, yes, there was a problem there, but it wasn't the problem they're blaming it on. <clears throat> Rather, the remedy to the problem would have been to enable their child to have a greater love for our Lord and thus appreciate the Mass more, whereas the 
parents' reaction was designed to make the children appreciate the mass less. And the results were not good. They, hard, they, they reaped what they sowed. Father, going back to something you said earlier, just real quickly, when you, you mentioned the, uh, the arguer saying that, uh, you know, if you would, were to take a survey of the 1950s era school children who attended daily mass and those who didn't, uh, they seem to imply that, uh, that there would be no, no distinction between, uh, those who actually held on to the traditional faith and those who became Novus Ordo Catholics or, or what have you. Um, it seems that they're implying that there was no difference between the two. And I think, uh, if that's their implication, I think that perfectly agrees with, with what you just said, that, um, that obviously the role of the parent is very important. Even if you have, uh, this daily mass and that's not, uh, fortified, it's not reinforced by, by the parents and, and the education that they're receiving at home, that even the, uh, the daily mass and the, the daily communion, as powerful as it is, it can be kind of, uh, at odds with what they're getting at home. Definitely, definitely, Tom. I mean, you see the point. And I mean, if parents today, traditional Catholic parents, will actually say, well, Pius, St. Pius X said this and did this. It was very important to him that children have the daily Mass and access to receiving our Lord Communion daily. But, you know, he was wrong. Well, that's the spirit of the Novus Ordo. That's exactly the spirit of the Novus Ordo. Mm-hmm. Well, he was wrong. What did he know? <laughs> I know better because mm-hmm. I have a child or maybe more than one child who grew up and they, they, they're not as fervent in, the, in, in, in their attending mass or maybe not even going to mass at all. And they want to say it's because they had to go to mass when they went to Catholic school. That's, well, the very least you can say about it. Not only is it nonsense, okay, but it's, it's, it's actually totally contrary to the mind of the church. And the thinking of St. Pius X. Again, that whole attitude, that shows a kind of obstinacy of the, of the will and a kind of perversity of the will. He'll say, I know better than Pius X. He didn't know what he was talking about. Rather, what he was doing was actually encouraging what would actually turn the children away from the Mass and the, and the Blessed Sacrament. And that's what St. Pius X was really doing. I know better. Well, if this is the attitude that they convey to their children, no wonder. No wonder they're not going to uh, persevere in the faith or take it very seriously. The parents, again, are communicating an attitude to their children that is uh, actually can be fatal to faith. So I just appeal to them to at least uh, take stock about that. But... uh, one thing's, uh, th- there's no doubt about what St. Pius X told us we should do and how he saw the battle against modernism and preserving the souls of the children against the modernist errors had everything to do with their attending the Mass and receiving Holy Communion, especially in those the years of their, their formation, a childhood. Uh, no, he didn't say that it was uh, going to immunize them perfectly against all the uh, you know, the wiles of the modernists. He didn't say it would prevent them from ever being led astray by the world. But he said, if we don't get them to that communion rail before the world corrupts their souls and get them into the habit of receiving our Lord and appreciating the Mass when they can, that we have very little hope that when they do stray, they will ever find their way back. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway... 
we, again, you know, we're traditional Catholics because we follow Catholic tradition. Hmm. St. Pius X himself has made very clear what Catholic tradition is, and especially in light of what we need to do to meet the the challenges of the day, the challenges of faith today. Sure. Well, Father, I just had one more item on the agenda for tonight. It's already been a, a rather lengthy program, so perhaps we could kind of wrap things up, things up very quickly here. Uh, but, uh, Father, we have a lot of Ohio State uh, fans that watch our, our show, a lot of Ohio State football fans, and, and recently they had a, a very big game with our arch-nemesis, arch uh, Michigan, that team up north, as they're affectionately known. And... Uh, in this this game, Father, the Ohio State running back, J.K. Dobbins is his name, he uh, had an excellent game. I believe he scored four touchdowns. And after one of his touchdowns, the announcer uh, on Fox, uh, where the game was aired, one Gus Johnson is his name, he very, very briefly told uh, the story of J.K. Dobbins, how his mother became pregnant with him at the age of 18 years old. She went to the doctor um, seeking an abortion. She actually planned to get an abortion, but at the last minute changed her mind for whatever reason. He didn't state why. Uh, but she changed her mind and decided to have the baby. And that baby grew up to be J.K. Dobbins, the star running back for the Ohio State Buckeyes today. And uh, Gus Johnson mentioned that uh, J.K. Dobbins, his mother, refers to J.K. Dobbins as her miracle baby. And so he t- just told the story very, very briefly, kind of in, in passing. And uh, Gus Johnson, for telling this story, has just been subjected to uh, an absolute barrage of, of criticism from uh, from the uh Twitter, Twitter verse, Twitter mob, or, or what have you, and uh, Father, they're, they're saying all, all sorts of, of nasty things that uh, that he should lose his job, that he should apologize, that this was totally inappropriate, that it was it was disgusting for him to tell a personal story like this. He had no no right, no no place to say something like that. Uh, Father, what, what's your what's your take on all this? Why why are they uh, why are they coming against him so much just for telling this this simple simple story? Well, I, I understand that what uh, Gus said amounted to basically a sentence, maybe a sentence or two yeah, at most. Uh, he just made that observation. Uh, I mean, if the child had overcome, uh, a, you know, it was almost killed in a car accident, and look at him now, you know, then people would have cheered and said, oh, look, he overcame adversity, right? <clears throat> if a child had been struck down with polio or whatever, but look, he fought his way back. and uh, um, <clears throat> But to talk about the danger that he was in when his mother had determined to put him to death, even before he was born. This strikes at the whole uh, ethos of the abortion, the abortion world, uh, the, the abortion mentality. And they feel very threatened by that. They, they feel terribly threatened by any decency that would show that it makes anybody think, well, thank goodness his mother did not abort him. The very idea that anyone would say we're inducing in the minds of people, thank goodness his mother didn't abort him. That would have been a very bad thing for her to do because then we would not have had this running back in Ohio State, would not have, you know, won this game so resoundingly. And that's what's important. You know, people say, oh, that's great. We had a great running back. His mother didn't abort him. Thank goodness she didn't abort him. Well, the people in Michigan might probably say, well, boy, (laughs) you know, if only his mother had aborted him, then, you know, we might have had a better chance of winning this game. They're still thinking in terms of, uh, you know, even those who might in this case say, well, we're glad, you know, that his mother didn't abort him. Uh, because he became a great football player. But what about all those other millions, millions of babies? Right? <clears throat> all of them human. 
as human as this running back and um, precious in the eyes of God, created by him for a very specific uh, vocation in life and uh, to have a place in heaven and, uh, and they're being aborted. The abortionists do not want anyone to think about that. And that's, that was the problem. This was the great atrocity of, of this uh, Gus Johnson, mm -hmm. of Gus mentioning this because that simple statement of his <clears throat> put in the minds of people, well, thank goodness that his mother did not abort him. <clears throat> Look at him now. What about the other children who are aborted? See, that's the next question. What about all those others who are aborted? The, the abortionists and their supporters do not anyone to, don't want anyone even thinking about it. They don't want to even suggest it to people. Because if they do, it tears the mask away from abortion and shows how evil it is. Mm -hmm. That's why they, they become frantic in their denunciations and they want Gus Johnson's job and they want his head. <clears throat> but I mean, let's face it, Tom. What do we expect? I mean, these are people who favor the, 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 the butchering of children in the womb of their own mothers. This is what they do. They favor the butchering of children in the wombs of their mothers, and they favor the butchering of the children by the hundreds of thousands or millions. This is what they stand for. <clears throat> Who's safe from these people? Anyone who would stand in the way of this diabolical uh, mania um, is in danger. You know? And so Gus Johnson happened to step out of line here for a minute, and they, they want him silenced. Um, but this is the mentality of the people who, who, who are furious with him now. Um, I mean, God bless him for mentioning this. I, I hope he himself realizes the irony of it all, <clears throat> that we're pleased, we're thankful that this mother did not abort this child. And I think, I think the, most, the most telling thing is that the mother herself is thankful that she didn't do this terrible thing and abort this child, and now she has this son who's, who, who has accomplished these wonderful things for his Ohio State, right? But um, again, I mean, I, that's probably the worst of it all, that it's put, it would put in the mind of a mother that there's an example of a mother who went to abort her child and she changed her mind. And boy, is she glad she did change her mind. She's so thankful now. What does that mean to me? What does that mean? Speak to my daughter or my sister or whoever, right? And uh, the, 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 the pro-death people, the pro-abortionists do not want people to think that way. And they don't want anyone putting those ideas in people's minds. And what struck me about this, Father, is, is that... Um you know, that it's just like you said, I think it was one, one sentence, maybe two. And, uh, I, I don't even, I don't even know if Gus Johnson himself is pro-life. I, I doubt it. Um, but, uh, this, I, I certainly don't think that he intended this, uh, this short little two sentence story to, to be kind of a, a pro-life message. I don't, I don't know if he did or not. I, I don't, I don't even know if, if JK Dobbins himself is, is very pro-life. Um, I certainly hope so. But, uh, you know, things have fallen so far that, uh, you can't even tell tell the truth anymore. I mean, even regardless of if this is pro-life or, or, or not, it's it's just a simple little two-sentence story about the truth, something that actually happened. And and these, these pro-death 
pro-abortion people are are so just diabolically angry mm-hmm. about everything that they are just ready to pounce on, on someone for this and just devour them. They feel threatened by the truth. They they feel threatened by the truth. That says a lot mm-hmm. about them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so, well, interesting story, and uh, I mean, we remember the story of Tim Tebow, mm-hmm. right? And uh, his mother, yeah. similar story. Yeah. She wanted to abort him or was uh, contemplating it. She didn't, and she's very grateful. Remember the reaction back then when that became uh, co-celebrity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they were outraged. At, what are you saying about all these people who go ahead with abortion? Are you condemning them all? And, you know, as though uh, this was an outrage that, that there should be a story like that in the first place and that it be told publicly. I mean, they take it as, a, as an offense, a mortal crime, a, a capital crime to, to because of what it suggests about what they're doing. But you could see the Nazis reacting the same way. Instead of you talk about what they were up to, oh, the reaction was they were fit to be tied. It was an outrage, right? It's the same way all throughout history. Those who are involved in horrible, horrible criminal activity, their best defense is a good offense, and they go on the attack. And that's exactly what we see in this case. They go on the attack. Well, Father, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for all of the uh, information that, that you shared with us. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about the Mass uh, during this program and, you know, for all, all the good that you do here in this program and, and everything else that you do, I think it's all dwarfed by the uh, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, which you offer every day. So I'd just like to, in the uh, with the theme of this program, to thank you for, for offering the, the Daily Mass for us all. Well, uh, thank you, Tom. I appreciate your appreciation, but I'll tell you, every time somebody tells me that, they go, thank God, I thank our Lord, I thank our Lord that he's willing to, uh, you know, come to us even through the the hands and the voice of an unworthy priest, um, and he's willing to come there. I mean, we all thank God. We thank him for that, because he is not just a priest, he is the priest, right? So uh, thank the Father for sending his son to us as our Redeemer, and we Thank the Divine Son for giving us the Church and the guidance of the Holy Ghost to keep us mindful of what our Lord has always taught. Has taught, and we are on that track when we follow Catholic tradition. And only when we follow Catholic tradition are we on that that track. But, of course, central to that is the Holy Mass. And uh, that is when we flee to the mountains, flee from the world, it's wastelands, and so we go to the mountain, we go to Mount Calvary, and there we find the cross, there we find our Lord, there we find the Holy Sacrifice, there we find salvation. Thank you, Father. Very much. Thank you, Father. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and finally to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.